0: So, last week, we talked about kind of the theme of the book of Hebrews, which is Christ is more beautiful, more believable. He's better than all the other things that vie for our heart's affection. And um, there, there really is a battle going on. I actually think of worship as warfare. Now I don't mean that in the way that some people mean, but the idea, not that like we can well up some power that will cast Satan down and give God's angels more power, that's not biblical at all. But in our worship, if our eyes are opened to see who Jesus really is, we will be transformed. And in the battle is to see Jesus more beautiful and believable, rather than all the other things that are tempting, more tempting for us to put our trust in. Now, the book of Hebrews is about that very thing. And in chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is, again, speaking to people who are in Rome who have begun to suffer for their beliefs. And it's only going to get worse. And the particular temptation that they have is that if they quit following Jesus and go back to being Jewish, then in the Roman law, they are protected. The Roman law did not tolerate other religions that rivaled the worship of Caesar, except the Jews were granted a special allowance. And as long as the Romans thought the Christians were a kind of Jewish sect then they were counted under that. But by the time this letter is written, the the situation has changed. The persecution has begun, and it's only going to get worse. And at the very end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews kind of goes on this whole little thing, which may seem a little bizarre or kind of not relevant to us, where he talks about how Jesus is better than the angels. Now, in chapter 2, he's going to develop that. And, And let me just remind you, there were certain pockets of Judaism. This is not the true Old Testament worship and religion. But at this time, there were certain pockets of Judaism where they were worshiping angels, not just God. And it seems that that is the background of what he's talking about here. And if you think about it, angels are actually magnificent, awe-inspiring beings in the Bible. Like I said, when you see angels on TV, they always say, they're there. But when you see angels in the Bible, what they always say is, don't fear, fear not, because they're frightening. But that also makes them a good candidate for putting your hope in. In them, We often want to put our hope in something that we think is powerful that will protect us. And what happens so often is when we put all of our trust in this thing, it actually doesn't make us more powerful or safe. It usually makes us more vulnerable and more incredibly anxious, particularly if that thing we're trusting in isn't very reliable. It actually makes you more anxious than you would have been otherwise. Now, that's not the explanation for all anxiety, so don't hear me uh, saying that, right? I believe in chemical imbalances and all those kinds of things. But there is this spiritual dynamic that often happens when we put our hope in things other than God because all of those things will let us down, and we know that, And so even though we put our trust in them sometimes, we're also like afraid that something's gonna uh, come along and we're gonna be extra vulnerable. All right, so that's the context as we come into chapter two. Remember, Jesus is superior to the angels. But if he's superior to the angels, then so must he be superior to the message that came from them. Now, this is an interesting thing because the Old Testament doesn't say that the angels were used by God to deliver the Mosaic law, but that was the Jewish tradition, and the writer of Hebrews picks up on that. So that's what it's talking about when it talks about the message delivered by angels. It's talking about the covenant with Moses, or what you might think of the Ten Commandments. It actually was more than just the Ten Commandments. I hope you know that. I, I, I know if you've ever seen the movie, the Charlton Heston movie, where he's got the, you know, some of the Ten Commandments on one tablet and some on the other. That is not at all what happened. There were two tablets. Why? So that man would have a copy and God would have a copy, because when you cut a covenant, each of the parties needs to have a copy. But not only that, the, the, what was given was not just the Ten Commandments, but also the whole sacrificial system, because God didn't want to just say, hey, you need to live this way. He also provided a way for his people to be reconciled to him when they didn't, right? So that's the message that was delivered by angels. If you will, follow along. I'm going to start reading chapter 2, verse 1. So the therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should always ask, what is the therefore Therefore, And I just gave you that. It's, he was talking about Jesus' is superior to the angels, therefore The message that Jesus has given is superior. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And what he means there is the news about Jesus, the gospel. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that's the Old Testament law, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, it means Jesus himself, the Lord. I know most people today pray the Lord and they mean the Father, but in the New Testament, whenever it says the Lord, it's a reference to Jesus. So Jesus was the first one who came and announced good news. So it was announced first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Who are the ones who heard? The apostles. So the writer of Hebrews, some people have in ages past thought it was Paul. It's not Paul. Because Paul would never have referred to himself as like the next group after the apostles. This person is saying that the apostles heard the word directly from the Lord, and then see what else else. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We'll talk about that a little bit, because in the New Testament and in the Bible in general, signs are always about authenticating a spokesman, God, and that's what Hebrews here is saying. They're not just willy-nilly things to show off that we've got this cool power. They're always connected to God giving revelation and attesting his spokesman. So that's, that's verse 4. Now verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8, and I'll explain. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus, God left nothing outside of Jesus's control. At present, we do not see everything. Everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he likewise to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted lord we do pray that you'd help us to um to drink in deep of your love and your gospel through this portion of your holy word amen so hebrews can be a little difficult sometimes to follow the train of thought, right? So, so let me see if I can, can help you as we go through this. Like I said, the, the first thing is talking about if Jesus is superior to the angels, then so must be the message that he proclaimed. And this is an important thing, because if you drift away from Jesus and go back to the Old Testament, you've missed the full flowering of the message that God has been speaking for a long time. You Remember, if you were here last week, chapter one talks about how in times past, our God spoke to our fathers through various means at different times, but in these last days, he has spoken to us on his Son. So the idea is Jesus, in many ways, is the exclamation point that God is committed to marrying himself to his people. He's been saying that all through the Old Testament, and now with Jesus, he says it in a loud, unmistakable voice. I want to marry you. I would rather die than live without you. Right? If that's true, why would you go back to just all of the hints and shadows? When you could hear what God said so clearly, why would you go back? And, and, and not only is it sort of trying to tug at your heartstrings, why would you go back? But also this, you know, if you didn't listen to the message of the Old Testament, it was serious. If you disobeyed what God said, there were consequences. So, too, with the gospel. So, too, with the gospel. Don't turn away. It is the final word. It is God's revealing himself, his heart, his plan for all those he's made in his image. Don't neglect it, right? As I said, we mustn't neglect it. We also mustn't be naive about the signs and the wonders. Um, A guy named B.B. Warfield, over 100 years ago, wrote wrote a very helpful book on this, pointing out how miracles are actually not distributed uniformly throughout the Bible. Did you know that? They actually congregate around a couple key times, which have to do with when God is bringing fresh revelation. The first is Moses. Why did Moses have all these signs and wonders? To authenticate him as God's spokesman. As a matter of fact, part of what God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai were laws and rules about how will we know in the future if somebody says, God told me to tell you this, how are we going to know? Now, we know Moses because we heard the voice from the mountain and and the people said, "Uh, we can't stand this. God, you go take Moses up there and tell him what you want us to know and then he can come down and talk to us. But one of the things that gets laid down in Deuteronomy is how will you know in the future if someone comes along and says, hey, God told me you need to do this. You need to drop out of school. You need to do this. You need to do that. How will you know? And and what God says through Moses is, that person needs to be 100% accurate in short term verifiable predictions. And you see it all through the Old Testament with prophets. They make short term verifiable predictions. Like Jeremiah tells a guy in six months, you're going to be dead. And in six months, the guy drops dead and it's recorded so that you will know when Jeremiah talks about coming back from the exile, that the exile is not the end of the story. You'll be able to believe him because he's been authenticated as God's spokesman. And all those other prophets who in the day of Jeremiah are saying, peace, 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 don't listen to Jeremiah. He's kind of a, he's kind of a downer. You will know who you can trust, right? And that's what Hebrews is saying here, that the signs and wonders given to the apostles were to authenticate them as God's spokesmen. And I really really do think this is important because I think a lot of people are confused about this and they look at the book of Acts and they expect the signs and wonders you see there to go on and on and on. And if you don't, then you're on the wrong side of the Holy Spirit or you're not really believing in God's power. And guys, I'm telling you, there's a very clear pattern that's all through the Bible. It has to do with authenticating God's spokesman. We can talk more about that over coffee if you want. So if... The message that Jesus has given is not to be neglected. There is a certain objection that probably arose for the people who received this letter, and it, it may not didn't strike you as, as it would have struck them, but it's still important for us to look at. And it's this: How can Jesus really be better than the angels? Now again, that's probably not the question that's foremost in your mind. But there are some objections to Jesus being the one. That is true. And here's what's interesting. I I think I mentioned this a little bit last week. Different cultures in different time periods have different objections to Christianity. Sometimes they're actually mutually exclusive. So it really is interesting. I think sometimes people don't understand or realize how some of their objections are more culturally conditioned than they might think. For instance, today, people really struggle with the idea that God would judge anybody. But all I can tell you is, you know, there are Psalms like Psalm 97 that says, "'Zion rejoices in your judgments, O God.'" If you told people in most of world history and most cultures that God was not going to judge the powerful oppressors, well, that would be a major objection to taking Christianity seriously. Do you see the difference? Today, we think, what right has God to judge anybody? But for most of human history, it's just the opposite, which should just at least give you pause to say, what seems common sense, objectionable to me, may not actually be as commonsensical as I think it is. It's actually one of the hardest things you can do, and I hope maybe your freshman seminar class will help you with this, is to examine even your presuppositions and what seems common sense, right? subject even your common sense views to a little analysis. Anyway, so that, that's one of these things. How can, how can God, how can Jesus be superior to the angels? After all, Scripture says that he's lower than the angels, and there you have Psalm 8. Now, I, I could get all on this for a long time, and I'm not going to do that, but here's basically the thing. The Greek translation of the New Testament, which the Jews were using even in the first century, translates Psalm 8 in a way that makes it sound like Jesus is lower than the angels. But the Hebrew, which is the authoritative inerrant text, makes it clear that it's mankind who is lower than the angels, but only for a season. And actually in the Hebrew that word angels Elohim do you know that word anybody know what that word yeah use that word for God it is a word that can mean God it's also a word that can mean angels or divine beings so if you understand it I think the right way to understand Psalm 8 is mankind was made a little lower than God not mankind is lower than the angels now there are some theologians in the history of the world who said well you got god and then you got the angels and then you got humans but i think mankind was made lower than god so without going into all this stuff the writer of hebrew says you're misunderstanding psalm 8. you're misunderstanding psalm 8. scripture does not show that jesus is lower than the angels though for a time he was lower than the angels do you know why because he came and when he took on human flesh, he actually, as the book of Philippians tells us, laid aside some of his glory. That becoming incarnate was what we call part of the state of humiliation. He laid aside his glory. There were times where he gave people a little glimpse, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, right before his crucifixion. He revealed a little bit of his glory, and the disciples are freaking out, and they're like, we need to just stay right here, right? But for the most part, he shielded his glory, laid it aside. So there was a time when he was lower, but because of that humiliation, God has raised him up, what we call the state of exaltation. And that's who he is now. So that's the first objection. But the second objection is, how can Jesus be superior to the angels? How can Jesus be the one who could deliver mankind from its plight if he died? If he died, doesn't that prove that he actually didn't have power? But what the writer of Hebrews says, actually, the fact that he died shows how great he actually was, because it means that he can be touched and can share in our sorrows and his death put death itself to death. So let's see how this goes. You look at verse 5. It talks about verse 5, about how it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Here's what he's saying, basically. Angels were never meant to rule. Who was meant to rule in God's place as his stewards? Mankind. Mankind was made to be the crown of creation, to serve God, and to bring out all the God-glorifying potential that he built into his creation. They weren't to just do whatever they wanted with the creation. I know there are some that would say the problem, you know, with Christianity is led to the exploitation of nature and all this other thing. That is true in some ways, but it's not the way God designed it. God designed it with actual limits. You aren't able to do anything you want with anything that God has made. That's never been the biblical view. You are to be a steward, and you are to listen to me. You can't eat of that tree, by the way, which is to say God didn't give them carte blanche freedom to do whatever they wanted with the creation. That's never been the biblical view, though a lot of Christians, I think, are confused about that point. So man was meant to rule, and what's amazing in Psalm eight is it talks about who is man. When you look at the creation, maybe who's hadn't had this experience? Maybe you come on our camping trip, and if it's not too cloudy, you can have this experience. You look up in the stars, and what do you always think? how insignificant we are but you know what the psalmist David says in Psalm 8 he goes when I look at the heavens what really amazes me is how important man is now he did not get that from just looking at the heavens he got that because scripture namely the story of creation is determining how he understands what he sees in the heavens Because the creation story tells us that mankind was the crown of creation whether you feel like it or not, right? That's Psalm 8. What really blows away David is not the stars, as amazing as they are, but that you would pay special attention to mankind and that ties in here. Because Jesus came not to redeem the stars, but to redeem humans, mankind, right? It's part of this bigger story. Jesus came to save not just our souls, but to bring this completion that God had created his whole cosmos for. Mankind is to be back in that place of right right relationship with God, bringing out all, again, glorifying him in all we do and whatever vocation God calls you into, pushing back the effects of the fall and working to bring out God's glory. But verse 8 talks about how the story is not yet finished. Everything has actually gotten screwed up. Look at verse 8. In putting everything in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside his control. We sang about that in that song, Sweet Comfort. At present, and this is the key, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Now, I know, I've talked to a lot of Christians over the years, who have this idea that right now Satan is ruling the earth, and that in the millennial kingdom, then Jesus will reign, that's hogwash. That, that what's going on now, Jesus is Lord of all, right now. Everything is in subjection to him, but we don't see it yet. The problem is with what we see. The problem is not with whether Jesus is Lord or not. Okay. And that's hugely important. It's hugely important for the Hebrews to understand because do you know who claims to be Lord of all? Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero, the guy who eventually is going to dip Christians in tar, put them up on poles and light them as human torches for his garden parties. That's what the Christians in Rome are going to be facing. Do you think they need to know that Jesus is on the throne right now? Absolutely, and he is, but we don't yet know see it that way we live in what is called the already and the not yet already jesus as it said in chapter one has made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the father that means if you are a christian there is no more guilt for you you are not guilty if you are a christian and you never will be do you feel like that i don't think so That's part of the already not yet tension because you don't see what God sees. You don't see the finished work of Jesus who is sat down at the right hand of God because he's finished the work of making purification for sins. We see, as Paul says, but dimly. That's why we're always praying, Lord, open our eyes to see what's true, what's real. He is Lord. We don't see it, but he is. So we live in this already, not yet tension. Already Christ is on the throne, ruling over all things. Already Jesus can sympathize with us because he himself was tempted and he suffered more than we ever will. But not yet are Christians free from suffering. We must never think that the kingdom is here in such a way that Christians don't suffer. Or that if they do suffer, it's only because of their lack of faith or they haven't prayed enough or the right way. That's nonsense. And you understand, the writer of Hebrews is not saying, if only you would pray better, if only you would pray with more fervency, then all of this persecution would pass away and you wouldn't need to worry about it. No, he says, cast your eyes on Jesus, the one who suffered but is even now Lord over all things. That's what you live in. And that's the truth that enables you to persevere. You mustn't be naive. You mustn't be um, the kind of person that thinks that the the already is fully here. It's not fully here. There's so many places where the Bible speaks about this. But I was thinking about one of these hymns that you all might know. It is well with my soul. Right? Maybe some of you know this. Already. It is well with my soul. Now, you know the guy that wrote that, Horatius Spafford, wrote that after his daughters were killed in a shipwreck and his wife sent a telegraph cable back to her husband who was still over in Chicago, saved alone, two words. You can actually go to the Library of Congress website and see that telegram. They have it in the Library of Congress. Saved alone. And he writes as he goes over to England to be reunited with his wife and he gets to the spot where the ship went down that took the lives of his daughters. The ship captain points it out and he writes this hymn, It is well with my soul. It is well. Not it will be. It is well. Even now it is well. And yet the last verse, Lord haste the day. When what? When what? My faith shall be sight. sight. My faith shall be sight." We just sang about that, right? When Jesus, I, my cross have taken. That's the way Christians have always understood this. Our faith turns to sight, hope turns to glad fruition, as we sang in Jesus, I, my cross. So that's the, that's the thing that's going on here. There's already not yet tension. Hebrews calls us to look beyond appearances. It's gonna do this over and over and over again. I am not saying that if you're Christians, you just shut your eyes to suffering. That's an awful message. That's not true. Suffering is real, but Jesus is more real and more solid. You remember, like, that's what C.S. Lewis uses, that image, that this is the shadow lands. But if you've ever read his um, book, The Great Divorce, right, heaven is more solid. We think of it as a cloud, which is just the opposite. It's actually more solid and more real, than what we experience now. We see through a class dimly right now, we don't see everything the way it is. But, even though we don't see everything the way it is, we see Jesus. We may not see him on the throne the way we need to, but we see him who was tempted in every way, just as we are. You see, here's what's so interesting. To the writer of Hebrews, Jesus' humanity is not a weakness. It's actually what makes him better, right? It might seem that Jesus taking on human flesh and being crucified proves that he's lower than the angels, but it proves just the opposite. It gives Christ advantages that your idols, whether they be angels or whatever, can never have. Here's the first one. The fact that Jesus took on human flesh proves that God does not love us from a distance. How many of us Have experienced love mostly from a distance, right? He doesn't doesn't stand at a distance and yell at us to get better. He doesn't just send us letters. You remember Jesus tells a parable about this, about a vineyard owner who kept sending people to tell the, the people in the vineyard what they should do, and eventually he sends his son, and the people in the vineyard kill him, right? Jesus proves that God does not love from a distance. He takes on human flesh, became one of us. Do you know what it must have been like? I mean, we walk around or we watch the news um, and and, and we see so many things that are not right, that break our heart. But I think sometimes we think that God is just sort of up there from a distance, right? That old Bette Midler song. (laughs) But the reality is... Jesus' heart was broken more than yours ever will be. Because unlike you, he knew the way this was supposed to be. Right? So you imagine the heartbreak we experience when we see, like Bob Dylan says, everything is broken. But he knows what it's like when it's not broken and how glorious it is. Why else do you think he's called the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? What it must have been like for him to walk this earth and see the oppression and see the brokenness and see the corrupt leaders leading God's people astray like sheep without a shepherd. He says that kind of stuff all the time because it was on his mind, it was breaking his heart, right? He experienced suffering personally. And, and one of the most amazing verses to me is verse 10. Look at verse 10. This is one of those verses that just always stuck in my craw. It was fitting that he, that means Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I've always wondered, why is it fitting? Why does it make sense that Jesus should suffer? He who didn't deserve to suffer, that fitting word, it's just like, what? No, it actually doesn't make sense at all. Why should the one who didn't do anything wrong have to suffer? But it's fitting because we needed someone like us to be able to experience what we ourselves experience to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, Hebrews is going to pick up on this theme later, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But I, I love this poem. This was, I put it in your outline. I won't read the whole thing, but this was written by a guy named Edward um, Shilito. He was a free church Presbyterian minister. That means he was a Scottish Presbyterian. And he wrote this poem after World War I. Uh, I'll, I'll read verse 1, and then I'll jump to verse 4. He says, If we, if we never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. And then look at verse 4. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode... But thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Do you know what it means to have a God who has been wounded? Even more beautiful, how Jesus is able to radically identify with his people. One of my other favorite verses in the Bible, it's in verse 12. Oh, sorry, it's. Um, where does it say where he's not ashamed to call? It? It's verse 12, isn't it? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the end of verse 11. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Man, you could just sit and meditate on that for a while. It's one of my favorite phrases in scripture. And what makes it so amazing is remember who he is and who we are. Now ladies, this isn't just a gender thing. This is, you know, he he says that he's our older brother, right, brothers and sisters. He claims us. He doesn't distance himself from us. You know how often we wanna distance ourselves from other brothers and sisters in Jesus, especially when they say ridiculously stupid things. And we're like, yeah, I'm not really part of that. (laughs) And do do you know what Jesus must think of half the stupid stuff we say? But it doesn't matter. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters. And it's not because we do so well at representing him. It's because he lived and died in our place. And he can never abandon us. He can never distance ourselves. And look at this in verse 12. Do you know that Jesus is the one in our midst who leads us in worship verse 12 quotes the psalm saying i will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation i will sing your praise jesus is the worship leader the book of hebrews actually says whenever we gather for worship that the whole church that's went before us all those saints whose rest is one as the old hymn says are here with us and the angels like, what we do in worship is not limited to this place and to the here and now. That's a mind-blowing thought, and it's going to come up later in Hebrews. We'll talk about it more. But here's the thing. Jesus is in the midst singing, leading us. I have a friend, Reggie Kidd. A uh, New Testament professor um, down at RTS Orlando for years who wrote an amazing book about our singing Savior. And he has this great line where he says, Jesus loves to sing in the midst of his people, but he does it in different voices because his people make up every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. So sometimes he sings like Bach and sometimes he sings like Bubba. Sometimes he sings the blues and sometimes he sings the most like the handle, you know, Messiah, you know, Handel's Messiah the hallelujah chorus right like all of that Jesus is leading in this singing but then the last thing I want to talk about he takes on flesh to do battle with our enemy it's only by taking on human flesh that Jesus could destroy the devil because only by taking on Jesus taking on human flesh could Jesus die and his death is destroys satan's power because his death destroyed the basis of satan's accusations which is the curse of the law there's a couple places to see this but one of the best is in colossians 2 colossians 2 hebrews 2 two key passages for spiritual warfare And and here's, I'm going to read you Colossians 2. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That means that Jesus has already conquered Satan. He's already disarmed the powers and the principles. You might say, really? How? Well, he took away the basis of Satan's accusations, the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren can no longer accuse God's children because there is nothing to accuse us of. Jesus has made purification for sins, and he sat down, okay? So Satan's chief power is to convince you that you're a miserable piece of crap. (laughs) But I love the way Martin Luther talked about this. He said, look, when Satan comes to you and tells you that you're a miserable piece of crap, don't try to argue with Satan. Just say this to him. Say, devil, you're right, and you don't even know the half of it. But don't take it up with Jesus. Because he died in my place. I've got nothing to say to you. We've got nothing to talk about. There's nothing left, right? John Newton says it well in one of his hymns, Approach My Soul, the Mercy Seat. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. That's the only thing you need to say. That's the only thing you need to remember. That breaks the power of Satan because it breaks the fear of death. That's what Hebrews is talking about here. Look, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You don't need to be subject to lifelong slavery because of what Jesus has done. Isn't that good news? Yeah, that's something no angel could do. That's something no idol could do. No thing that you put your hope in, like your people-pleasing or your performance or you know, your resources, whatever. No angel can do that. No thing that you have can do that. While Jesus' death might prove to some people he was a failure, his death achieved a victory that only he could achieve, and it sets us free from the fear of death. Now, we're going to pick up on this Next week, But I want to I just say this other mind-blowing thing. It's mind-blowing to me. Maybe it will be to you. I don't know. I, I, for the longest time, I was a Christian a long time before I learned that Jesus' suffering did not begin at the cross. Jesus' suffering began at the Incarnation. His humiliation began at the Incarnation. And we'd get, we prayed that prayer. If I'd grown up in a church where we prayed good, solid prayers like that, I would have learned this a long time ago but I didn't. But that's an ancient uh, prayer that's in many different denominations. I got that version is out of the Moravian liturgy, but it's similar in the Anglican church, and there's a version of it in the Catholic church and many other denominations. But the point of it is, there is something to comfort us from every single thing Jesus experienced. He was born into a feeding trough. There was no glory there. It was dangerous, It's a miracle that he survived, right? But not only that, you know, Herod tried to kill him. Not only that, he was circumcised at the eighth day. On the eighth day, his flesh was cut, but not because he himself needed to be cleansed. He had no need for that cleansing ritual. He was pure. On and on and on and on, every single thing that Jesus did, all of his suffering was part of qualifying him to not only pay for our sins but to give us his perfect obedience and and here's what what you need to understand so many christians i think believe that what jesus did was died on a cross to forgive them for their sins and guys that's only half of the good news because what the bible says in second corinthians chapter five you can go look this up later God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, righteousness is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness means you don't owe a debt anymore, that your debt has been cleared, okay? But righteousness means the beauty that comes from having done everything God required from the heart. Jesus did that. And when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you take credit not just for the death he died, but for the life he lived. I've heard it said sometimes that when you become a Christian, you know, you've know you got this book, let's say you got this book, kind of like Santa Claus, but I've heard preachers use this illustration. You've got a book and God's written in there everything you ever said, everything you ever did, right? And, and, and the book is kind of a mess. Who would wanna open up that book and read it? But when you become a Christian, a lot of people say, God wipes the slate clean. Okay, that's great, except what about the day after I become a Christian? Because the book's going to get filled up again, (laughs) you know? What am I going to do to say, Jesus, I have lived the life that you require? Well, here's the reality. Jesus' life is also given to you. You get credit for his life. Jesus has a book in which God has written down everything he ever said, did, and thought. And when you become a Christian, God switches the covers. You don't have an empty book. Becoming a Christian is not just a fresh opportunity to try and get your life together and impress God. It's resting in the righteousness of Christ, the beauty of Christ, of what he's done, not just his death, but his life. In other words, it's what we call a trust transfer. You trust his life instead of your life. You trust his death instead of your death. And that changes everything. It brings reconciliation with God, and it changes everything. And that's what Hebrews is going to keep talking about. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to not sing a closing song. We're just going to do the doxology tonight.